0: On your feet all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. This time here at Progressive, put your hands together and warmly receive Jackie Hill Perry.
1: Y'all can sit down. I know your feet hurt. Yes, sir. How you doing, Saints? So don't none of y'all come to the eight o'clock, huh? Nobody. Okay. Oh, you do? One of you, God bless you, man. His light shine upon you. gracious to you. Um, my name is Jackie. Um, I live in Atlanta. Me and my husband, my husband's from here, he's from the south side. Uh, but shout out to you. That's why he's the south side. Y'all look, y'all a little hood. Um, no, it's a particular kind of hood, even, even the way y'all say car ain't right, you know. Um, it's an H kind of thing. So, like, when I met him, I was like, What is a car? I don't know what a car is Uh, it's a car Um, (laughs) but we moved here I lived here with him for five years and then we just moved to Atlanta a year ago with our daughters our oldest daughter her name is Eden she is four Um, our youngest is 12 months her name is Autumn so my house is never quiet and I am never rested Uh, and so that's my life if you feel like praying for me please do Uh, that's the Holy Spirit leading you in that prayer Um, today I want to I want to talk about sexuality Um, This is a polarizing conversation. Uh, This is a difficult topic, a complicated uh, topic, but a necessary topic. Why? Uh, Because it's in the Bible. (laughs) If it's in the Bible, then we have to deal with it. Um, But I want want us, my heart here, is to deal with it in the way that God would have us deal with it. I think historically, the way it's been dealt with is how it's, it's... it's been unloving, it's been crass, it's been calloused, it's been forceful, um, and I think it's damaged people like me and people that I know. And so I want to talk about it in a way that I think would honor God and help would help us to love people well. Is that okay? Uh, before I do, I want to tell my story so that you have context to why this uh, conversation is important to me. Uh, when I was... Um, you made me want to just uh, sing, and I don't sing. It's just—it's making me feel a spirit that I don't even have. And I would—they would—they would leave. And so, thank you. Um, <laughs> I was raised in St. Louis into a, a single parent home. Uh, my mother loved me always. My father loved me sometimes. Uh, I think not having a dad—I don't think that made me gay. Um, I think it gave me more reason to be so if that makes sense. It gave me uh, uh, some type of evidence for why I should continue to pursue what I felt uh, the need to pursue. But when I was around four, uh, I felt same-sex desires. Uh, I just knew, you know, the same way that boys or girls on the playground, they have that feeling of an attraction for the other little girl in, in the playground. That's what I felt. But I didn't, I I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was called. All I knew is that this was a reality and that that this was this was something that was present inside of me. And so when I went to church, that's when I found language for it. Uh, When I went to church, that's when I found that the name of what I was feeling, the name of this desire was homosexuality. And my issue wasn't with the name or even with the condemnation that was given to this particular passion. It was with the way in which it was talked about. It was the, the, the inflections, the tone, the facial expressions. It was with the mob mentality of the people sitting in the pews that made me feel as if obviously this thing is something that I cannot tell to Christians. Uh, this, this feeling that I'm feeling within myself as a four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, that I cannot ever be honest about this with the saints because the saints don't like people like me. Um, and so I kept it to myself for a long time. Um, Until high school came, high school, people usually act out high school, college, I chose uh, 11th grade. Uh, And so for me, I felt as if it got to a point where I just felt like to, to be lesbian, Seemed like it would be easier for me to just be what I felt myself to be instead of to instead of continuing to act out or project this kind of Heterosexuality that wasn't even true to me. It was more so how I could keep myself uh, Morally presentable to the people around me. Does that make sense? And so I felt like you know what? I'm gonna just be gay that, that that's 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 who I am. That's what I feel. That's what I want to do Um, and so that's what I did uh, I, I ended up transitioning into what in the black uh, lesbian community is called a stud A stud is a the female who projects a kind Kind of hyper-masculinity. So I sagged my pants, I wore boxers, I wore uh, sports bras to flatten out my chest, I wore um, over-large t-shirts, I had uh, straight hair at the time, I put it in a ponytail, I still arch my eyebrows because that's important. Um, and so, <laughs> that was one of the few feminine things I kept. Um, and I think, I didn't say this in the last thing, but I, I think part of the confusion, even as it related to masculinity and femininity, that I was experiencing was owed to the misrepresentation from people on what it meant to be a woman and a man. Let me explain. When you're growing up and you're a girl that doesn't like pink, doesn't like purses, even to this day I don't like purses. Half of y'all got purses with a Charger and mix in it. It's just too much baggage. But for me, I, I didn't, I didn't, model the kind of woman that they said girls were supposed to be. I had a heavier voice. I I wanted to be rough. I was a little what they would deem masculine. And so naturally, uh, I'm feeling as if who God has made me to be is not exactly right because the culture is telling me that I'm not a woman. You act like a boy. You act like a tomboy. We do this thing to boys too, to little boys that might find themselves being, what they would say, overly emotional. We say they're acting like a girl as if emotion is gendered. You know, as if emotion isn't something that God has given us all to express. And so I think for me, naturally then, I'm going to be confused because people are defining womanhood, not in terms of the scripture, but culture. Women are, they wear dresses and they act prissy and they flip their little wrists a little hard and stuff like that. And so for me, I was confused. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to be except what people told me that I should be. And so I did that. Um, But when I was 19... Uh, I I was in my room doing something real unspiritual because I didn't go to church. I didn't feel Church is just Overwhelming when you already when your sins are outward It's overwhelming to go into a space where you feel like people are looking at you like you're a bug and not a person Um, And so I, I withheld my presence from those kind of spaces And so I think God in his kindness and in his his sovereignty He knew that seeing that Christians were not bringing him to me. He had to come himself and so when I was 19, uh, I was in my room and I felt God speak to my heart in such a way where all of my sin and its judgment was no longer a metaphor anymore. It was a reality. Um, to the point that everything that I heard in Sunday school was like, oh, this is this is actual. God is not playing with sin. God is not playing with judgment. God is not saying that I might kinda judge you. He, he's saying that he will, but in the same Bible that spoke about the condemnations around my sin was the same Bible that spoke around the hope that I had in Jesus Christ. So it wasn't as if I had to believe one and discard the other. I just simply had to believe both. It was that I saw for the first time in my life that one lesbianism wasn't my primary issue. My primary issue was unbelief. Unbelief was the thing that told me that everything that I'm feeling deserves more submission than God does. Unbelief said that everything that God has said about himself in these scriptures aren't quite true. Unbelief said that God, if he were to be a Lord to me, he wouldn't be a good one like my girlfriend would be. That, that's what unbelief is, is that everything that God has said in his word and in his, in his scripture is not taken as accurate. And so what God ultimately wanted to deliver me from was from unbelief and into faith. And so I saw that he has to be the good one here. If he's calling me out of these things that I love, calling me out of idolatry, calling me out of greed, calling me out of lust, calling me out of pornography addiction, calling me out of weed abuse, calling me out of drunkenness. If he's calling me out of this, he's not calling me to turn from that and turn in on myself because the church for so long, I thought that salvation was just that you just don't listen to secular music and you're nice to people. I'm serious. I had no concept of salvation being a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit that was initiated by the power of God. I had no concept of that. They told me to change would be to change my clothes, change my music, stop watching certain movies. They gave me works instead of giving me gospel. And so because they didn't give me gospel, I never had the, the, the power that I needed to change. You get what I'm saying? And so finally, God in his kindness, 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how the enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers where they cannot see the light that is in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit lifted the veil where I saw Jesus for who he was. And when you see Jesus rightly, repentance is impulsive. It's, it has to happen because you see something better. Um, and so God was good and he saved me um in saving me in saving me and I'm going to make this clear throughout this talk in saving me that did not mean that God saved me or keeps me from experiencing same-sex attraction when saving me was a positional change what it meant was is that I was no longer a sinner but now a saint And in being a saint, even though I still experience the same temptations, my relationship to them has changed. And so now I don't love my temptations like I used to. I love God more than what I'm tempted by. That's what salvation does. In this conversation, I want to make it very clear that this is all about God. Because sexuality doesn't even make sense without God because sex doesn't. God made sex. So to talk about sex, we need to talk about God. Even in my story, it was God who made me. It was God who drew me. It was God who saved me. And it's God who kept me. God is completely to blame for my being his. so I think for us to even begin this conversation, we have to begin by talking about God. In Genesis 1-1, the Bible says, Is the book where we learn God, where we see him, where we hear about him, and we get to see him like the disciples saw him. We get to learn a lot about this invisible God. But the beauty about the Bible is is that the first thing it tells us about God is interesting. It doesn't tell us that God is Lord. It doesn't tell us that God is sovereign. It doesn't tell us that God is Alpha and Omega. What it decides to tell us is that God is creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why do you think that the Bible would tell us us about God in that way first? I think because for God to be authoritative or for God to be Alpha and Omega or for God to be powerful, he has to be able to make something from nothing. For God to be creator, he has to be the one that wasn't created. For God to be able to tell you what to do, he has to be the one who isn't told what to do by anybody. And so creator, him being creator already establishes a precedence that everything that comes from him is subject to him. I think when you understand that, everything starts to make sense. It starts to make sense because it says, why does this conversation matter? Why should I change? Why should I submit my sexual sexual passions to God? Because he made you. And because he made you, he has the right to tell you what to do. We as human beings, we don't like that. We don't like the fact that God could be so authoritative that he would have the right to tell me what to do. But we actually should delight in the fact that God is an authoritative God because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be God at all. But we should also have joy in the fact that he is not only authoritative, but he is inherently good. And so even if his commandments don't sound good and don't feel good, they are good because they come out of a good God. This talk, I began it by the way, is, is much more lecture than sermon. Uh, I'm going through categories to give us a framework for how to think about this conversation, starting with God, then us, then sin, then uh, conversion. No, sin, sex, sin, and conversion. Moving on to us Genesis 1: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1:27, God creates man. The text says that God makes man in his own image. It's a beautiful thing to be an image bearer because it means that you're so much different than everything else God has made. You're different than the plants and the oceans and and the animals. You're something particular, something special, something peculiar. And so I think God is good that he let us know that, man, nothing on earth bears my image except you implications of being an image bearer, I think are two that speak to this particular conversation, which is being an image bearer means that all people, all people are valuable to God. Two texts that I use to draw that out of, the first one is in the Old Testament in Genesis 9, God is talking to Noah and he says this, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, talking about murder. And he appeals to the fact that his, this, whoever sheds the blood of man shall be, their blood shall be shed because God made man, this person that you killed, in his own image. Moving towards New Testament in James chapter three, when God through James is talking about the tongue, he talks about how people will use their tongue to both curse people and bless people. But he doesn't just say people. He qualifies it by saying people who are made in the image of God. What's the point? The point is, is that the value of human life is so high that other human beings will be judged on their treatment of other human beings. How does that speak into this topic? How do you think our conversations with people about sexuality would change if we remembered that everyone was an image bearer? It would change drastically. Because we would speak with dignity. We would speak with honor. We would talk about people in a way that gives reverence to the fact that their face, their body, all that they are points to somebody other than them. The second thing is, is that being an image bearer of God means or points to or implies that you were made for God. It's many texts to point to that. But one of the ones that I like the best is Colossians 1 16. It says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth that includes your body, visible and invisible. That includes your passions, whether thrones or dominions or rulers that includes your brain. I'm just calling all the, all the things we might forget. All things were created through him and for him. Being created for God puts everything into perspective. It makes us step back and ask the question of what might God have me here for? Oh, himself. If he has me here for himself, when I have desires that he says that I should not obey, what should I do with that? It kind of puts a a, a lens over our eyes where we see that our entire, our entire selves, our bodies, our emotions, our minds, our fingertips, our ankles, our gifts, our passions, all of things are to be a means of worship. That does something to your brain when you see that this body doesn't belong to me. I might have it, but I don't own it. And talking about sex. God creates Adam first, right? Creates him from the dust. And then he says that god it's not good for Adam or man to be alone. It's interesting that God had given Adam dominion and authority and allowed him to name all of these animals and do all of these spectacular things, but God, we don't see it in the text uh, anywhere, that God asks Adam for his opinion on who would be a suitable helper for him. We don't, we don't see him uh, uh, making someone like Adam, but we see him making someone altogether different from Adam. Then he makes Eve from a bone and he says, uh, therefore, man shall leave his father and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. We don't see the mention of sex in the Bible until marriage is created. But it's not as if Adam didn't have sexual, sexual capabilities before Eve even popped up. He wasn't a eunuch. It was that God wanted us to see that sex always has a context. God made sex too. sex is a good thing too. Sorry if it ain't good for you. We're going to pray your strength in the Lord, but, um, he'll do it. Uh, that was a bad metaphor. Um, (laughs) sex is a good thing. And I think for many of us, me included, I didn't learn about sex from the church because it wasn't talked about or well. The perversions of it were talked about, but none of the glories. And so I think for that reason, my understanding of framework of sex was taught to me by the world. So naturally, when I learned about what what the church thought about sex, I automatically thought that was a bad thing because that was never the foundation that I learned it from. But sex is a good thing and it is a glory thing. What I mean by glory is sex is created to exist within marriage. Marriage being between one man and one woman. Marriage is a pointer to the gospel. We see that in Ephesians 5:31 through 32. So that tells us that sex was not used or is not to be used for our own discretion. God has given sex boundaries. God has given sex context. God has given these boundaries uh, genders, male, female, and he, he's given it to us within the context of a covenant. So sex is a big deal a good deal a glory deal but it is safest when it's done how God created it to be expressed Um, the only reason we're even having this conversation now is because sin exists if you have your Bibles please turn to Genesis chapter 3 Genesis chapter 3 you will not surely die, for God knows And when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good, everybody say good, good. knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was, say everybody say good. good, good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was doing nothing, who was with her and he ate. <laughs> I, to this day, I don't, I don't know what he was doing. Uh, Was he cutting the grass? I'm not sure. Um, Remember when I said earlier that God is an authoritative God, so he has the right to tell us what to do. Remember that? And I mentioned how to many of us that might not sound like a good thing. This this word, good, is an important word. It's a word that we need to deal with because it's an ethical word. It's a moral word. All of our questions now around morality are surrounded by good. Is it good for me to have a partner or not? Is it good for me to attend my uh, gay best friend's wedding? Is it good for me to like this particular picture that I think is cute but it got rainbows all over? These are the kinds of questions that we're asking ourselves. They are questions of goodness. In Genesis 1-3, through the word good pops up 14 times. The first time Genesis, or good is uh, seen in the scriptures is Genesis 1 verse 10. It, it says that God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. Anytime you read Genesis 1 through 2, you see that a lot. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Another way to read that is that God judged that it was good. That's important because not, God is not only just creator. God is not only just authoritative, but he's also judge. Judge of what? Goodness. If goodness, then what? Evil. He is the judge of all things. Even though God was the first person to mention this word good, who was the second? The devil. The devil comes along and uses the concept of goodness... Not in the same way that God does. He takes this word and uses it to tempt Eve into non-goodness. To tempt Eve into sin. He tells her that God knows that when you eat of this tree, that your eyes will be opened and you will be like who? Like God who does what? Knows good and evil. Who is God again? God is creator. God is authoritative. God is uh, pre-existent. God is the eternal one, the all-knowing one, the authoritative one. He says she could be like him by eating a piece of fruit. That she, a created being, could be like the one who wasn't created. That, and also that in being like him, she could then have the authority that he has. What does this authority include? Having an understanding of knowledge that, that includes goodness and wickedness. What's the point? The point is, is that Satan... Convinced Eve that by sinning against God, that she would find access to the ability to define goodness on her own terms. That's the implication here. He's not saying be like God in terms of righteousness. He's saying be like God in terms of ultimate authority where you can do whatever you want to do and call it good like he did. This this kind of thing came from sin. Where we now have become people who look at a thing that God said will kill us and we say, but it feels good though, so it must be good for me. If you look at verse 6 for a second, I'm going to read it for you. I want you to pay attention to a word. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate." I'm so glad that that word is there because it tells us that Eve had an affection for this tree. Somebody might think that's strange. Why in the world would somebody have feelings for a created thing? But isn't that what this conversation is about, where we have passions? and desires toward things that God has made and told us that is not for our consumption. That's this whole conversation. That's what idolatry is. Is to esteem a created thing over the creator. The question is, do you think that she made that desire up? Do you think that it was concocted? Is it a possibility that this desire was out of her control? I think it was a real one. But the question is, Did the legitimacy of the desire or the enduring nature of the desire make it morally acceptable for her to submit to if God told her not to? I'll ask it again. Did the legitimacy, the presence of the desire or the amount of time it lasted, meaning if she felt this affection for this tree for the rest of her days, did it still make it morally acceptable for her to submit to if God told her don't have it? Eve was not excused from obedience just because she was tempted to disobey. And the same is with all who are tempted with sexual sin, heterosexual or homosexual. We might feel like it might be a good thing. Good. I use that purposely. A good thing to pursue, but just because it feels good to us doesn't mean that it is. But our bend, our bend, our default is to assume the opposite. This right here, this situation in Genesis 3, is the beginning of mankind's propensity to determine goodness, not by faith but by affection. Faith. Faith would have looked at that tree and said, yes. it looks good for food. Yes, it's a delight to the eyes. It's gorgeous. It's attractive. He looks good. I like looking at him. I like looking at her. I feel like looking at them or being with them would make me whole. Yes. It is the delight to that. Yes, it has all these good qualities that I am perceiving in this thing. But God said, don't eat it. And because God is the creator, he's the good one, he's the authoritative one, he's the wise one, he's the pre-existing one. I have to believe that he's infinitely wiser than me. So in him telling me, don't do it, he knows what he's talking about. That takes faith to believe when everything in you don't feel that way sin feels good if it ain't felt good to you I don't know what kind of sin you was doing so it takes crazy faith in God to believe that restraint is wiser than submission to sin when they took a piece of that fruit we all who came from Adam have the same issue We all inherited sin now, where we are not just born in sin, but we're born loving it. We enjoy it. We want it. We crave it. And that's why we get mad when anyone would tell us no. That's offensive. I'm gonna read a couple texts that I think speak to the connection between sin and desire. John 3 19 says, and this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people loved, took pleasure in, longed for, esteem, esteem, the darkness rather than the light. Romans 1, 26 and 27 says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That's the same language in Genesis 3. Dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions, feelings, desires, attractions for one another. In Ephesians 2, 2 through 3, it talks about how people who were dead in their trespasses and sins in which they used to walk, when they followed the prince of the power, the air, they lived a particular way. People that followed the devil is what it's saying. People who follow the devil, how they live is that they live in the passions of their flesh. How they feel rules what they do. Carrying out the desires of the body. To be said frankly and simply, the flesh has feelings. Racism is a feeling and a mindset. They feel like hating you. Lust is a feeling. Same-sex attraction is a feeling. That's not to diminish it. It is to say that it's legitimate, but it is a affection. It's a feeling coming out of a flesh that is not submitted to God. We are all born in this world dealing with particular lusts and sins because we're born in it. Sin is a greedy little thing. You cannot think that sin is going to be in your body and it's not going to make claim on everything that your body produces, including your affections. It's going to take that too. So it's not safe then to allow our affections. Having an understanding of our flesh and how it affects our affections. It's then not safe to allow our affections to define how we live. It's not, it's only the sin in us that makes us believe that because we feel it. We have no choice but to do it. But just because the feeling exists does not mean that it's worthy to be obeyed. I wanna talk about orientation a bit here uh, because talking about same-sex desires and feelings, that's what we're talking about. The definition of sexual orientation is this. Sexual orientation describes patterns of emotional, romantic, and sexual attraction and one sense of personal and social identity based on those attractions. The two terms used most commonly to describe sexual orientation are homosexual and heterosexual. I believe that the creation of these categories does assist us in uh, having conversations and understanding ourselves in some way. But I think that they have been unhelpful to us in another sense. Here's why. In the definition, it says that I'll read it again. Sexual orientation describes patterns of emotional, romantic and sexual attraction and one sense of personal and social identity based on those attractions. Sexual orientation has become a way that people define themselves. In other words, sexual orientation has become a matter of identity. We have concluded that because this is how I feel, then this is who I am. That contradicts Genesis 1, don't it? Because who you are. I'll, I'll get to that later. In 1868, in 1868 is... The first time we even see the language, homosexual and heterosexual in the world. These are recent categories that we use as if they've always existed. Uh, they were used, or medical terms, and they were used as medical terms usually, but now we have made them a part of our identity. Even when you read the Bible, you know, you see the word homosexual in it, First Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Not even Romans one. 1 Corinthians. You'll see it. And I thought to myself, so, but the word is in the Bible and the Bible was written a, whole, a long time ago. But if you read one of the oldest Bibles, which is the King James Version, which was written in 1611, which is obviously very, very, very far behind uh, 1868, you'll find that homosexuality is not used, but effeminate is. And when you look at the Greek of effeminate, you see that it's talking about men in bed with another man. Paul was not appealing to orientation with the condemnation for homosexuality. He was appealing to gender, Two gendered people slaying down with each other, which was unnatural. That's what he was talking about. If you were to deal with a man or talk to a man before 1868 and call him, are you gay? Are you straight? He'll look at you like you are crazy. He would say, I'm a man. What, What do you what do you mean? Because people did not define themselves by how they felt or who they liked or what they loved. This is a modern phenomenon. There's a woman named Janelle williams Paris. She wrote this book called The End of Sexual Identity, and she has this quote that I like. She said, the major problem with sexual identity in general is that it's a social construct that provides a faulty pattern for understanding what it means to be human, linking desire to identity, implying that what you want, sexually speaking, is who you are. But according to Genesis 1, who you are is an image-bearer. According to Genesis 2, what you do, no, who you have become is a sinner. And in Genesis, no, that's Genesis 3. And after Genesis 3 and the rest of the Bible, now what you do is sin. I say this because how we have historically understood its orientation and sexual identity has impacted how we understand people. And because it's impacted how we understand people, it's affected our evangelism, our discipleship, and even our own encouragement in our own journeys to godliness. Let me explain. Um, it's common, I'm sure, Pastor Dates, that people will come to you and say, hey, I have a nephew, a son. Who uh, He says he's same-sex attracted. He said he, he's, he looked at a young man and he feels an attraction for him. He doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. Uh, so I feel confused. I feel uh, burdened. I, I want this to change. I need this to stop. And so I, I just don't know what to do with that. I'm sure it's rare, though, that you have people come up to you and say, Hey, my son, he said he looked at that little girl, but I'm confused. I don't, I'm burdened. I don't really know what to do. Uh, this got to change. I, I need this to stop. Because we've assumed because it's heterosexual that it's still natural. As if lust, in God's eyes, is not still considered adultery. The problem is, is that when you put people into these categories, you confuse yourself. I think if you saw people just as image bearers with the same problem, you'll actually have more answers to your questions. you are also, have a fair assessment in how you see them. Because when you just label people as gay, what happens is you have whittled somebody down to just being who they're attracted to. As if being an image bearer does not make us much more complicated than that. Do you think a triune God will make an uncomplicated person? People, it's so much more to them than who they like. And so if your entire ministry is just about picking off a leaf, then you won't even get to the whole person. God does not want partial surrender. But that is what will happen when all you preach at is is their sexual identity and not their heart. When you preach at the heart, now they're able to see, oh, God wants all of me. All, All of me he wants for himself, not just that part, not just who I like. I think another thing is when your sexual identity is how you see yourself. It makes more or creates more room for you to be discouraged in your own life because you've given your sexual identity more power over yourself than it should. Because the world is going to tell you because you still feel that you're hey, you still gay. You might as well go back. Your dreams are still going to exist. You're going to walk past a, a, a little booth at the mall and smell something that reminds you of somebody that you ain't supposed to be smelling no more. And the world is going to say that still moves you because that's who you are. But when you recognize that who I am foundationally is an image bearer of God. And that if I am a Christian, who I have become now is a Christian, a new creation, then my temptations no longer define me. What defines me is who the the person is that died for me. I'm not defined by what I'm tempted by. I can't be. That doesn't rule me because if it rules me, then it enslaves me, but I'm a slave to another master, a good master. Some people, especially in academic spaces, Harvard, Princeton, all these type of places, they would say that I am suppressing my true self. That's the language they use, that I'm causing harm, that I am a woman that is yet and still very much same-sex attracted, yet not allowing myself to express myself in that way. They would say that that's dangerous, that's trash. That's If you look at the comments on my videos, you'll see it. The problem is, is that they don't understand the scriptures. They don't recognize that in James 4, my true self is defined as an enemy of God. In Ephesians 2, my true self is a child of wrath. I'm... I think I'm being pretty wise in suppressing that person because the Bible, God, Jesus himself says, if you want to follow me, you actually have to deny yourself because the self that you've been led by is the self that don't love me too much. When we allowed our temptations and our sexual proclivities to become our identity, we gave it way more power than God ever intended. So what are we to do? What do we do? We don't, I don't think we have to dismantle categories. I just think that we have to get back to viewing people and ourselves and each other the way that God does. What is that? Before Christ, enemies of God, children of wrath, born in sin, born having particular inclinations and pulls towards certain things. The world says that because you feel this way, this is who you are. And because this is who you are, this is what you do. But if anything, having these desires and these particular feelings and passions and affections, it actually shows that the Bible is accurate in telling the truth and what it says the flesh will produce. And so what we should do is that we have two options. The first option is because it exists, this is what I do. Or because it exists, this tells me who I need. These affections, these feelings push me towards a savior who told me he'll give me power. I wanna talk about the heterosexual gospel. I have a chapter of this uh, in my book. I'm going to quote it because I think I said it way more prettier on paper than I would right now. Uh, It says, God isn't calling gay people to be straight. I know some saints clutching their pearls. If we still wear pearls, I don't know. (laughs) They gold chains, I don't know. Um, You think he was by listening to the ways Christians try to encourage same-sex attracted people within or outside their local churches. They dangle the possibility of heterosexual marriage above their heads, point to it like it's heaven on a stick, something to grab and get whole with. And though it's usually well-meaning, it's very dangerous. Why? Because it puts more emphasis on marriage as the goal of the Christian life than knowing Jesus. The heterosexual gospel is one that encourages same-sex attracted men and women to come to Jesus so that they can be straight, or that coming to Jesus ensures that they will be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. The ways in which this gospel is preached is much more subtle than I've made it out to be. It usually sounds like, I know you're struggling with being gay. I can promise you, if you give your life to Jesus, he will completely deliver you. We love that word deliver you from those desires because he loves you. Or, I know a guy that used to be gay and now he's married. Jesus will do the same for you if you trust him. God surely can deliver someone completely of same-sex attraction. And God definitely can take a same-sex attracted man or woman and turn them into a spouse to the opposite sex. I'm obviously a witness of that. But the scriptures have not explicitly promised these as definitive gifts for being reconciled to God or as the immediate inherited blessing of regeneration. We have promised heterosexuality as if the Bible has. I know I'm treading. Um, the thing is, Christians are really well-meaning when they say it because they believe that God is powerful. They believe that God can do anything. They believe that he, he can do impossible things. But this is actually what you're saying. You're telling somebody, hey, when you come to Jesus, you won't have those temptations anymore. We don't say that to straight men. We don't. God going to deliver you from that lust. I, when you get married, man, it's going to be a struggle, but God going to keep you. We're actually real. We, we actually recognize that coming to Jesus does not mean that I won't struggle anymore. We recognize that coming to Jesus means that how I struggle is different. And so I think we have to be clear when we use language like deliver. We have to, because in the scriptures, oftentimes deliverance is used as a metaphor for salvation, Deliver you from a place of harm into a place of safety Israel delivered out of Egypt into the wilderness That's that's usually how it's not it's not talking about the absence of temptation So we have to be careful when we use these kinds of language that can make somebody think that if I come to Jesus I shouldn't struggle because what happens is that if they come to Jesus and they end up struggling because you told them They won't they think they don't come they didn't come to Jesus at all. They're confused now Because you didn't lay out what Christianity actually was, which is a faith with broken people and tempted people and struggling people that just love God more. That's it. But also, it's a deterrent to authentic faith in Jesus. I've met so many people that thought that acting straight was the same as being saved. Because the church told them it was. And so they'll say, I tried to be straight, I got married and everything, I tried my best, but I just can't. Because people never said, I'm not telling you that you won't struggle, what I'm saying is be holy anyway. It's a difference. It's a difference in how we need to communicate. We have to be clear on the gospel because we're leading people away from the truth when we are not concise in what the Bible is actually saying. Does that make sense? And I guess I feel like I'm pleading because these conversations are constant for me. A lot of the people I know that have walked away from God have come from the church. It's, it's the church that has not handled this conversation well. And don't hear me wrong, God is sanctifying his bride. He promised he would do so. But I think he's also using means, people for me who have come out of these places to say, we got to do better. Um, Some people would say that they're born gay. I think nowadays no one would say that that's a genetic thing. They're not appealing to DNA when they say that. What they're saying is, is that as long as I've known myself, this is how I felt. That's all they're saying. For me, I was four years old when I discovered my same-sex desires. I didn't even know how to spell my name yet. You think I chose it? You think I just said to myself, you know what, I'm going to be a lesbian. Didn't even know that word existed, but it was present in me. I think the Bible has something to say about the connection of what must happen about being born a particular kind of way. In John 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asks Jesus, hey, how can I inherit eternal life or or basically the kingdom of God? How can I make it to heaven? How can I be with you? How can I be saved? And Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see. The kingdom of God. We don't even know from the text what his issues are. We don't know what he struggles with, but the fact that he was born after Adam automatically makes him a candidate for being born again. Jesus says how you exist in the world today means that you won't make it into heaven without something changing. What does it mean to be born again as it relates to sexuality? This is a conversation about conversion. Conversion is when you change from one character to another type of character, one purpose to another kind of purpose. So saint, uh, a sinner to saint, heart of stone to a heart of flesh, uh, enemy of God, friend of God. Conversion is a change in who you are, what you love, who you submit to. That is a conversion. But I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 so that we can see how Paul talks about what conversion has done in people just like me. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6, please, and then I'll be done and y'all can go eat. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice, not homosexuals, but men, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's. So, Paul is saying that there are some unrighteous folk. And this unrighteousness looks like this. It looks like uh, continuing in drunkenness, continuing in sexual immorality, continuing in adultery. Practicing these things makes you an unrighteous person. That's Paul's words, not mine. But then he changes, he shifts in verse 11, he starts to talk crazy. Cra- he says to these same people, and such were some of you. Whoa! So you're saying that these unrighteous people, these adulterers, and these swindlers, and these, these ungodly folk, these lesbians, these gay people, they, they're, they're in the past tense now. That's not present anymore. You're saying that they've changed. Yes. How does he say their change looks? Let's read it. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Let's understand what Paul is trying to communicate because I think it'll bless you like it blessed me. He says, but you were washed. What does it mean to be washed? Well, think about sin. Sin makes you a very blemished person. You have stains on your hands. It speaks kind of to this picture of Old Testament garments, how filthy rags. That's that's what you live like when you're an unrighteous person, that you are not clean. Your robes are not white. They are very, very dirty. But when you come to Jesus Christ, what he does is that he washes you. He cleanses, cleanses you. He makes you white as snow. That's what Jesus does. But not only that. He also sanctifies you. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be sanctified means you are set apart as holy for God's you. So these same people who used to be adulterers, used to be drunkards, used to be revilers, used to be swimmers, used to be greedy, that's the people stealing from you with the money in the medicine cabinet, those kinds of people. He says that you used to be that, but what God has done now is that he has set you apart as holy to use you even though he didn't use you before. I think that's really cute, that God would want to use somebody like me. But not only that, He hasn't just washed you. He hasn't just sanctified you, but he justifies you. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified means that I was guilty. I had some sin on my plate that I deserve nothing, nothing but wrath, nothing but judgment. If I stood before God without Jesus, all he would have gave me was hell. But because of the kindness of God, he got on the cross and took my sin and my punishment. And now he made peace with me and God. Where I am now no longer at odds with the father, but I am at peace with God. I am justified before God. Did he say anything about heterosexuality in that text? But I think everything that he said is powerful. Imagine what would happen if this passage here became a framework for some of the questions you might receive. Let me give you some examples. If someone said, if I come to Jesus, will I be straight? From 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, says, well, I can't promise that, but coming to Jesus means that you'll be made right with the Father. It means that you'll be justified. It means that you'll be at peace with God forever and ever. Amen. If someone asks you, hey, what am I supposed to do if my same-sex desires never leave? Well, the answer is, according to this verse, you're sanctified. So what you are is someone who has been set apart for holy as God. So however your flesh might act up, you be holy anyway. You still trust him. You still fight. You still take up your cross daily and you die because that's what God has called you to do. Last question, what if someone says, okay, I'm gay. I know that God wants me to serve them. I know that God wants me to love them. What am I supposed to do? Emphasis on their works. Well, you say, well, in verse 11, it says that all of this was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's really not about what you need to do, it's about what he's done. So all he's asking you for is faith. All he's asking you for is belief. All he's asking you for is trust. Do you see that when you get rid of what the culture is trying to make you think about people and allow the scriptures to be the means by which you understand everything, a lot of the questions you get will make a lot more sense. You'll have a lot more wisdom than you don't even know that you have. True change doesn't mean no struggle. True change doesn't mean no temptations. It means that your heart is different and your position with God is different. When you are born again, you will love God more than what you are tempted by. That's a fact. People need hope and the gospel has that. The gospel really is sufficient for this conversation. The gospel being that yes, because of Adam in the beginning in Genesis three, because of his sin, Sin has entered into the world and rendered us all unrighteous and given us this um, enmity with God. And we have this distance between us that lambs couldn't fix. That. Uh, Old Testament laws couldn't make right, we, that uh, wearing particular dresses or stop listening to cer- certain music, it just it just doesn't fix the, the distance between us and God, but God in his kindness of sends his son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, and he comes down and lives this perfect unblemished life, this life where he never submits to his passions. The only passion he submits to is his love for his father. This Jesus lives a life completely pure, completely acceptable, completely lovely, completely worshipful and he, this innocent man, gets on the cross and takes the penalty for my sin, my blemishes, and my lesbianism, and my porn addiction and my greed, and my self-righteousness and my drunkenness, and my arrogance, and my addictions. He takes the wrath of God for me. You know on the cross it talks about how it got dark for three hours and I think some people think that it just was the noon and that the sun went away, but that's actually Old Testament When you see Old Testament uh, communication about darkness is that the judgment of God is present and falling on the Son of God. That's why it's dark because he is under the complete judgment of the wrath of God for you, for me, so that we can become people of light. Do you see the contrast here? This Jesus goes to the grave and he's in it like we should be, but he rises from it like we cannot unless we trust him. And that grave, what it does is, I don't celebrate it just on Easter, but I have to celebrate it daily. When everything that tempts me is deadly, I have to remember that I don't have to submit myself to death because Jesus didn't. Because Jesus has rose from that thing I can too. This is the hope that is available to all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, when he resurrects from the grave, he gives us a promise. He says that I will send a helper. I will send the promised Holy Spirit who will help you to obey everything that's hard for you to believe. He'll really do it if you trust him. So I wanna encourage two people here. I ain't say none of this at eight o'clock. <laughs> I wanna encourage the person who isn't struggling or the person who's submitted, the person who would be considered a slave. Um, I, wanna, I wanna let you know world wants you to believe that's better. The world wants you to believe that autonomy will bring you joy. The world wants you to believe that you are your freest self when you are unrestrained from your passions. But the truth is, is that God made you for so much more. And I could easily say that he made you for marriage. I could easily say that he made you for ministry. All of that stuff is cute and beautiful and glorious. But the primary thing that God wants you to have is himself. It's the primary thing. There is no relationship that you will ever have on this earth that can compare to that Alpha and Omega. How? How? And it's going to take faith to believe that. What can you look at to say that that's true? You can look at the stars. Romans one, that's a contrast to our idolatry is that the things that God has made speaks to who he is. How can the one who made the stars be less than a person? How can a created being be more than the one that created it? The angels look at us and are confused that we would think so low of God to choose the things that he's made with his words over and above him. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But it's a risk to say, you know what? I'm going to trust that God was telling me the truth when he said that I'm good. I'm going to trust that God was telling me the truth when he said that I'm better. It takes faith. And it takes a risk, but it's a good risk. It's a risk that leads to eternal life. And in eternal life, you won't even need all them other relationships because you have the good one now <laughs> that can, nobody can ever take from you. A second person is the person who is a Christian, but wants to go back. And I get it, because it's hard to take up your cross daily. God didn't say take it up once. He said, take it up always. That's a hard thing. Crosses are a heavy thing to bear. They make your back hurt. It's just, it don't even make your outfit look cute to die to the flesh sometimes. I'm talking to the immodest people. But, (laughs) I had to make myself laugh. I feel vulnerable. I don't like it. Um, You have need of endurance, Paul says. Is that, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What you have to fight to do it's to look into that Bible daily and believe that its words are accurate. That there is a God in heaven who is gonna welcome you one day and say, I saw every no that you gave for me. I saw everyone. And because, because you thought I was worthy, well done. My good and not perfect, faithful serpent. It really, Just all my foundation is coming off. I don't like this. Um, My highlighter is gone, everything. Um, God is worthy. I want to leave you with a verse. Uh, Jude 124 and 25. It says, To him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence with great joy, to the only God, our Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I don't, I don't remember, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority, by both now and ever. Amen. Thank you.
0: Come on, let's stand on our feet, everybody. My, my, my. Somebody today desperately needed uh, to hear what we heard. I I desperately needed to hear uh, what we heard. You are not what you do you are not what you have done your identity is determined by the one who created you and our culture lies to us doesn't it doesn't it? it tells us to name ourselves after our affections but you're bigger than that there's more to you than those things somebody today needs to unburden themselves i i just want to take a moment to pray so that you can you can lift that off your shoulder and you can give it to the lord and i want to model this in the kind of way where you can and you do keep doing that because tomorrow you will face challenges and you'll have to do it again So, wherever you are, and you don't know the people, by the way, standing next to you. You don't know what they struggle with in front of you, behind you. I'm just going to ask that you all would join me in praying for those around you, that they would unburden themselves before the Lord, that they would give themselves totally and fully to Him, and that they would receive the fullness of God themselves. Would you pray right where you are? I mean it too. I don't mean like BQ, just drop your head and do nothing for two minutes. I mean, actually call upon the name of the Lord. Would you please? Would you please? And while you're praying, if you got children, pray for your children. If you got siblings, pray for them. name of the lord church call on his name and it's okay of course to be honest with god tell lord i want to be right some of us have totally unredeemed heterosexuality and we think god is cool with that just name it before the lord name it before the lord and plead with him for mercy he's kind and he's gracious
2: God, we just thank you so much for showing yourself today. I just pray, Lord, for every person right where they are, whether they're straight, struggling with same-sex addiction, lust, adultery, pornography, or whatever it is, greed, every area of unbelief, Lord. I just pray lord that you would just grab our hearts and help us long for you lord not the things of this world not the created things lord not just being following our affections lord as we just heard but for you lord help us to see nothing else will satisfy nothing else lord can do for us what you can do for us lord For your church, that we would not continue to put laws on other people and create barriers from people being able to come to you, God. Help us point them to you. Help us lead them to you, Lord. Not our rules, not our standards, not heterosexuality, not what we think, Lord, is right or good, Lord. We are not the judge. You are. Help us to lead people to you, oh God. And I pray that as we do, Lord, that we would be able to be like Jesus in the sense that we can live this life bearing our cross, taking up our cross, looking at whatever situation that it is and believing you in faith, daring to believe that you are telling the truth, living our lives like you are telling the truth because you are God. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. Help us to know you like that. So we pray this in Jesus' name.
0: Everybody, will you bow your heads one more time? If you're here today and you you want to go to heaven, but you're not 100 sure that you're going, will you slide your hand up in the air wherever you are? Will you slide your hand up in the air? Say to me, preacher, I want to go. I see you. I see you. Well, listen. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to give you that chance now. With your hand and your heart raised, would you pray that prayer of confession? Pray, dear God, I believe that Jesus Christ is your son, that he died on the cross for my sin, and that you raised him from the dead. If you prayed that prayer right now, will you slide your hand up in the air? You prayed that prayer and you meant it. Wonderful Savior wonderful Savior. You may lower your hands. Maybe you're here today, you're not a member of a church. Would you raise your hand? You're here, you're not a member of a church. Let me pray for you. God, you see the hands and the hearts that are raised before you. Call people to yourself. Draw them by your loving kindness and your great mercy. Do what we read in the passage today. Cause your kindness to abound toward them. For your glory and for our good, we do pray. In Jesus' name. Everybody